0: Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You can go ahead and have a seat. What would it look like for a group of people who lead worship in their different contexts, who have very different, specialized knowledge, not to forget their differences, but to actually bring our distinctives into worship. That's how Isaac Wardell articulated part of what animated his efforts to spearhead the Porter's Gate. Rather than a set band, the Porter's Gate is a collective of over 50 songwriters, musicians, scholars, and pastors from a variety of Christian traditions and cultural backgrounds. Each person was invited to come away to worship hear teaching, pray, reflect, and create together with brothers and sisters they may have never met before. And behold, our Advent song for today. This Advent at Church of the Cross, we are exploring with each sermon how an Advent hymn can help us consider and anticipate the coming of Jesus. This morning, our song is, His Kingdom Now Has Come. We have sung this with some regularity over the past year, and it draws richly from the gifts of the black church in its style and theology, its call and response dynamic. There is a lot to love, and one of my favorite parts of the song is the word is. Behold, behold, his kingdom now is come. Not has come, not is to come, both are true, is come. Advent plants our feet in reality. We do not pretend Jesus hasn't yet come. We don't pretend the incarnation has not happened as if the spirit is not given, nor do we pretend that the fullness of the kingdom has already arrived. We live between the advents, between the comings of Christ. And we sing... His kingdom now is come. We'll get to look today at this Advent song alongside our readings and consider them through the lens of three phrases. The clock is ticking, read the room, and the game is afoot. First, the clock is ticking. This is one of our faster paced Advent songs. His kingdom now has come, or is come, begins with a driving bass line, calling out the time. The tune itself is like a clock ticking at a quickened pace. All of the words of the song come from Scripture, with many having overlap in both the Old and New Testaments. Highlighted here is a cursory look at how many come from the prophet Isaiah in particular, The prophets formed, or at least attempted to form, Israel's imagination of what the coming Messiah would be like, what he would do. In the story of Israel, though, there had been a long wait, waiting hundreds of years for the Messiah to come. These words, these promises, lurking in the back of their minds during the long silence. And then here comes John the Baptist, He comes like that driving bass line in our song. With John, a clock that seemed to have slowed to a stop starts ticking again. And John, we hear that voice cry from the highway to make way for the Prince of Peace. And as a prophet, or as Jesus says in Matthew, more than a prophet, he draws from these Old Testament prophets and tells people about the Messiah, prepares them to welcome his reign, his kingdom. There are a lot of different qualities that the Messiah, of the Messiah that John talks about, but there's one he kind of leans into in Matthew's gospel. He kind of leans into judgment. John proclaims the good news that no longer will weeds grow up alongside the grain, that the Messiah who is coming is going to sort it all out. Our song doesn't come from the Porter's Gate Advent album, but from a collection entitled Justice Songs. The images from Isaiah are meant to draw us into imagining the bringing of justice, the judgment of God. We have been subject to terrible judgment, including our own that has lacked a fullness of perspective, compassion, wisdom, and power. We labor hard for what is at best proximate justice, that the new law passed, the verdict rendered, the habit employed, will do some good, even if it is imperfect. Our prayers of the people have centered around the themes of lament from a few weeks ago, and today we'll pray around our laments at a global scale that wide lens brings clarity that it's not that we have a solution. Sometimes we think that. We think we have a solution, but maybe just somebody lacks the, the authority, the will to change it. We don't have a clear solution to climate change, homelessness, and systemic inequality. It's a tangled mess. Even when progress is made, sin and death slither in, And weave themselves into our solutions. So we long for God to do what only He can do untangle the mess, sort it out, or as N.T. Wright likes to say, put the world to rights. We long for God's Messiah to come. And in our longing, the clock is ticking. So now it's time to read the room. When we come to our reading in Matthew chapter 11, things do not look like what John expected. John was trying to read the room, but needed help from Jesus to assess the situation. Earlier, John baptized Jesus. Their missions were aligned. And after John was arrested, he depended on updates from his disciples. What's the word? The word seems to be that good things are happening, teaching and healing, but it's not quite as sweeping as one would hope. It's not quite as sweeping as we might hope. Among other things, John might have been looking for Jesus to pick up those threads of judgment and justice. Talk of winnowing forks, coming wrath, God will not stand for evil to run its course any longer, so repent. At this point in Matthew, that facet seems muted, delayed. It may have been a particularly pressing point for John at this moment, because he asked this question not from Jesus' side as a casual observer, but from prison. The desire for the God of justice, the righteous judge, to show up lands differently when you're the victim of injustice. John himself was bearing the cost of God's rule not being enacted. He was subjected to the unjust rule of Herod. John would later die beheaded at Herod's command, so it'd be fair if his prospects felt grim. John tried to read the room, tried to assess the disconnect, and sent his disciples to ask, are you the one that is to come? Or should we expect someone else? The smallness of this kingdom, the seeming smallness of this king, are giving John doubts. I hear the kiddo's word from the princess bride as John sends his disciples to Jesus, I wasn't worried, just concerned. (laughs) Sometimes the smallness of the kingdom that now is come may give us concerns too. The waiting is painful. We too experience costs in God's patience with us, with others, and with our world. And we ask, are we sure we have the right guy? I didn't expect healing to take this long. I didn't expect to feel this lonely when I am companioned by God's Spirit. God's protection felt far when broken people, or in the language of Scripture, evildoers, had power over me. I've worked hard at this kingdom stuff and found my efforts frustrated. Are we sure we have the right guy? Michael Scott, the fictitious manager of The Office, is the character most frequently lampooned by the series. He's known for lacking self-awareness and being incompetent. And yet, he has these endearing moments of tenderness, care, and, dare I say it, some flashes of genius. In one episode, he is negotiating to have his... Startup paper company bought out by his old boss, David Wallace, and his old company, Dunder Mifflin. As they sit across the table from each other, Michael begins with his typical bumbling ways. David, the CFO of Dunder Mifflin, says, We are prepared to make you a very generous offer. To which Michael replies, And we are prepared to reject that offer. Never accept the first offer. What is your second offer? (laughs) You think there is no way this can go well. As the negotiations continue, David tries to lay out Michael's vulnerabilities. He's likely gone into debt. He's probably scared. The model he has set up can't last. David tries to read the room for Michael. But then it's Michael's turn. In one of those rare moments, Michael reads the room and sees the bigger picture. I'll see your situation, and I'll raise you a situation. Your company is losing clients left and right. You have a stockholder meeting coming up, and you're going to have to explain to them why your most profitable branch is bleeding. So they may be looking for a little change in the CFO. So I don't think I need to wait out Dunder Mifflin. I think I just have to wait out you. There is some cosmic sense in which the darkness, where sin and death, or in the words of our baptismal liturgy, the world, the flesh, and the devil, sit across from us and tell us how we're going under. They try to read the room for us. The church is too fractured. It's been too long you're afraid. This is unsustainable. Where Lent has us embrace our own mortality, where we say soberly to one another, my days are numbered, your days are numbered. Advent's clock calls out with equal sobriety, the days of this world order, the days of the dominion of the powers and principalities are numbered. Like Michael Scott, we get a glimpse of the bigger picture, and in the face of pain and suffering and intimidation, we say, oh, that clock that's ticking? That's actually your time coming to a close. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome. But like John the Baptist, we need Jesus to speak into those moments of imprisonment. Moments where there's a trajectory that almost certainly leads to suffering and the grave. We need Jesus to help us take stock of the present moment in light of the bigger picture. We want to read the room accurately with confidence and clarity and conviction, but we also need to be led into that. So let's turn to Jesus's response to John's and consider in what way the game is afoot. Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. Jesus points them to what they hear and see. The most repeated word in our song, we receive Jesus' invitation to John's disciples. Behold. Behold the blind receive sight. Behold the lame walk. Behold the deaf hear. All as Isaiah prophesied in our Old Testament reading today. And drawing from Isaiah and his response, Jesus did several things for John. First, he communicated continuity and validation. He used the same language as John, the language of the prophets. He spoke as one who is more than a prophet to one who is more than a prophet. Just as Jesus' baptism connected their missions, his response validated that connection. We're still aligned, Jesus proclaimed with the words of Isaiah. Second, as he drew from John's attention to the parts that were coming to pass, he instilled a confidence that the other pieces would come to pass. Drawing from Isaiah means that Jesus is drawing from the same vision not just in verses five and six of our Isaiah passage, but the ones in three and four. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. And drawing from Isaiah, Jesus invited a reasonable trust that the judgment and justice of God was still in view. Finally, he grounded the reading of the room in reality by responding with these words from Isaiah. These things happened. Jesus healed someone of leprosy. He raised a little girl from the dead. He proclaimed, blessed are the poor. Behold is not mere metaphor. It is in front of them, people with names and faces who have been transformed by the fact that the kingdom now is come. The game is afoot. What might it look like for us to participate in the continuity Jesus offers, the reasonable trust he invites, and the reality to which Jesus calls us to attend? Part of this is Beholding, bearing witness to what God has done, both in history and in the present. We ourselves are invited by this passage to be rooted in the scriptures. I don't think we can miss how significant the scriptures are to Jesus' understanding of himself and the church's understanding of Jesus. Behold what God has done. In addition, we remember the generations of believers who have gone before us. Behold, their sacrificial lives and deaths. We also have saints around us. Behold, God has overcome that which threatened to overtake us in this very room. A marriage that might not have lasted another year has, by God's grace, been celebrated and prayed over by the community. Behold a brother or sister who has faithfully lived into their celibacy and its costs because of their love for Jesus. Behold, needs for finances and community provided, the ongoing mending of imaginations, of neural pathways and disordered affections, the gift of needed gentleness and endurance for another day amidst frustrated vocations and relational strife. Behold, behold, behold. Over the summer, we preached through Philippians and one of the things we came back to was this idea of sharing gospel stories. We encouraged one another to share what God had done, that which we had seen or heard or felt. I, come to you now at the turning of the tide, the Advent season, to say again we need each other's gospel stories. We need to behold, to bear witness to what God is at work doing. We too easily worry that it seems too small to be significant, too small for anyone who is not us to care about, The first advent of our God seemed almost too small for anyone to care about. If our God scorned the small, we would not know the story of Mary or shepherds or barn animals in a remote corner of the world during an otherwise unremarkable time in history. Our God does things in ways that are almost embarrassingly ordinary. Just as Mrs. What's-It glories in wild nights, the people of God glory in the small things. We believe the smallest seed will become the largest tree. Share your stories. And if you're worried it's awkward or too ordinary, know you have a standing invitation with me or any of the other clergy here to walk right up to us and say as awkwardly as you like, I have a story, we would love it. John and his imprisonment needed the seemingly small story of Jesus lifting the fever of Peter's mother-in-law. We need each other's stories. I spoke with the Reverend Krista Vossler about our song for today, in part because I have no musical vocabulary. (laughs) But more importantly, Krista has a deep wisdom and thoughtfulness surrounding a great many things, not the least of which is music. As we talked about his kingdom now is come, she commented that these phrases are bouncing all around. They're coming at this quick pace. But when we get to behold, there is breathing room in the music. She said, behold gives all those phrases a place to roost gives them a home. When we participate in beholding in scripture, in church history, and in our experiences, these statements about who the Messiah is find a home. They root us in the reality that the kingdom is come, that the game is indeed afoot. This ending, you may have noticed that we lit the pink candle in the Advent wreath. This is known as Gaudete Sunday. Gaudete is the Latin word for rejoice. In many Advent wreaths, you'll see this week is set apart with the word joy. And for some of us, an attitude of joy will feel near this morning, as wonderful, as a gift from the Lord. And for others of us, when we think of joy, it may feel like a cruel ask something that others seem to have access to, but is not within our reach for us. It's okay to be sad. It's okay to be in pain this morning. It won't always be so. But today, this side of the second advent, joy and sorrow are tangled up together. The encouragement on Gaudete Sunday is not to conjure up or somehow sustain a fragile and far too fleeting feeling of spontaneous ecstasy. Rather, the invitation to rejoice is, today and in much of Scripture, an invitation to a practice, to a habit of communal praise, a habit of worship. As we hear the clock ticking, as we let the words help us read the room, and as our voices and stories join to proclaim that the game is afoot, we embody Godete Sunday, whatever our disposition. Krista also described the song to me as relentless. (laughs) It doesn't really let up. I don't think that reflects our relentlessness, though I hope to continue growing in tenacity. I think it more reflects the tenacity of our God. That he will be who he will be in this Advent season between the great Advents. Even now, our God of justice, our strong deliverer. Hear now these closing words from our relentless God through the prophets on this Gaudete Sunday. Those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. The winnowing fork is in his hand. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.